I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Today, I'm talking to someone with an incredibly long and varied career at the intersection between science, technology and insurance and reinsurance on both the broking and underwriting sides of the business. Now, Mike Steele is General Manager of Moody's RMS and is serving all facets of the industry from an independent perspective. The legacy RMS business effectively invented the insurance and reinsurance modelling industry and from the evidence that follows, it's been reinvigorated by its acquisition by global ratings agency and data and analytics firm Moody's. I often liken the business of modelling to being a precision arms manufacturer when there's a war on. Demand for your product is insatiable. These days, as formerly secondary perils become indistinguishable from primary threats, and new digital environmental ones are being created all the time, it's clear that the insurance war is opening up on multiple new fronts. Being part of Moody's is giving this business a whole new perspective on the world of risk, as well as far greater operational and financial capabilities to help measure and analyse those risks. This could manifest itself in developing new products for non-insurance financial institutions and governments, or trying to codify environmental, social and governance factors into a format that the insurance industry can easily adopt. What follows is a fascinating run-through of what's in Mike's very varied inbox. It's important and valuable work that's going to keep Moody's RMS and Mike very busy for decades to come. Near the end of this podcast, I remark that Mike has a really interesting job. And after a listen to this episode, I'm pretty sure you all agree. Enjoy the podcast. Mike, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. No, thank you. And it's, it's great to be here. Anybody who doesn't know you, why don't you just give yourself a brief introduction, a quick positive history of your insurance career to date and how you've come to be where you are now? I've been in the insurance industry over 30 years. 18 of those, I was in the reinsurance broken world, running analytics, structured products, capital markets, businesses. And then I had the fortune sort of having left the reinsurance broken world to become the group chief risk officer for Access Capital. Did that role for seven years, sort of quite intense role. Uh, when was that? About 10 years ago? Yeah, I, I joined Axis Capital sort of at the midst of the financial crisis, so March 2008. And I thought having been a reinsurance broker for so long, I knew everything there is to know about risk management and reinsurance and insurance company operations. But joining in the midst of the financial crisis, learned a huge amount around balance sheet risk and we investments. We all learned a lot, and, didn't we, yeah, about balance yeah. sheet risk. We'd all been thinking about cat risk and everything else, and what sort of risk appetite we have on the risk side of the balance sheet. We'd forgotten that you could lose 25% of your assets just because the whole world went into some kind of meltdown. Yeah, and during that time, sort of um, counterparty risk became a really big topic for everybody. And if you recall, from one weekend to the next, we didn't know which companies were going to be around or what absolutely. the announcement yeah, was think, going to be. Yes, I just joined the insurance inside and it was sort of absolute baptism fire. It was sort of every other weekend, we didn't know if there was a, a rumoured bailout of X, Y or Z corporation. And it was, yeah, it was a fantastic time to be around, but it was just discombobulating even for a journalist. It was fun for us because it was exciting, but at the same time, it was a bit sort of, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> I think anyone <laughs> left to buy a subscription to our, our newspaper by the end of this year. No, it was a... Interesting time within the industry and financial services and the economy generally, but as I say, great learning experience in terms of certainly my career, a great learning experience for everybody. And so I did that role for seven years and then sort of having left that role, I decided I wouldn't work full time again. <laughs> I do board roles and advisory roles and sort of maybe private equity and different things. And that's where I started working with RMS and started advising them initially on overall market strategy and so on. 
And then having been a customer of RMS for over 25 years, was very much drawn into the excitement and the energy within the team. And over the subsequent time period from 2016 onwards, I increased my time commitment and increased my role within RMS. And following the sale of the RMS business to Moody's in 2021, I was fortunate to be asked to take on the leadership role of RMS and then look to work with my Moody's colleagues to look at how we can expand the overall insurance offering for Moody's. So really exciting times and it's great to be part of a company like Moody's, but also working with a team like RMS where lots of energy, lots of engagement. Absolutely. And semantic point, is it okay to still call you RMS? Because I don't want to get into trouble. I see you were referring to RMS as RMS. Is it Moody's RMS or should it be Moody's RMS or we just... Yeah, so we switched at, at the beginning of 2023 to become Moody's RMS to recognize that sort of we were part of a much broader financial services group, much broader sort of data and analytics business, and we had much more to offer than we were as RMS on its own. Who knows what's going to happen in terms of the branding in future years, but I think through that rebranding of RMS, we've really been able to engage with our customers that this is very much an and in terms of the being part of Moody's, and the and is that we're bringing together much more data and analytics capabilities for the insurance industry, taking offerings that Moody's have with the banks and asset managers around the world and really sort of bringing that to the industry and opening up a new set of analytics offerings for the industry. Yes, it is really interesting. We should definitely talk about that because I suppose it's the first time that there's been a modeling business has been bought by a business like Moody's, where there's uh, previously you would be a very independent segment. And in fact, the previous ownership of RMS, I'm fully aware of myself, again, because it was a sort of media owning company, ultimately, yeah. a very big media holding company. Is this the first time that there's been actual a strategic rationale for owning a business like RMS? Yeah. And so that there are things that you can do together. So what's the top of the list? Obviously, you've mentioned already about banking, because obviously Moody's probably much stronger in banking. Yeah, are yeah. you going to start really branching out? Yeah, I think when we were first acquired, a lot of our customers were saying, well, why would a rating agency buy a company like RMS? And so there's an education process that Moody's is not just a rating agency. The rating agency is about half the business of Moody's. The other half of the business is a, a group called Moody's Analytics, which is where RMS sits. And really, Moody's Analytics provides table stakes data and analytics to those banks and asset managers, to corporates around the world, to governments on areas such as the know your customers or firmographic data, credit analysis, or all of these types of things. And so there was an initial education as to, well, this is sort of what Moody's, the scope of Moody's offerings. And then when you look at the sort of the reasons why Moody's bought RMS, and I think there were two reasons sort of primarily. The first one was that Moody's has been very strong in those other segments, had a very strong life insurance practice, but very light footprint in the PNC space. Yes, certainly. I'd say of the rating yeah. agencies, it's probably not the household name in ratings of it, PNC yeah. insurance. Yeah. The rating agency side of the business, which obviously had a light footprint within insurers from a financials rating, obviously yeah. for a, a debt issuance rating, sort of pretty strong in that sector. But for the Moody's analytics business, also a very light footprint in the PNC side. And so RMS gave Moody's 
that strong footprint in the PNC industry to be able to take all of those other offerings and sort of start to repackage them and look at what the insurance industry use cases around that. But the second element of why Moody's bought RMS is really for our work in sort of climate risk. And if you think of having that broad footprint in terms of those customers within those other segments of the financial services industry, Moody's wanted to be able to take all the work that we do on climate risk and bring that to those other domains so that really we can develop a common currency to start to think about climate risk. If you think about so when RMS was founded back in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, uh, sort of and particularly after Hurricane Andrew, yep. there wasn't really a common currency around how the insurance industries talked about cat risk. And RMS really helped define that common currency, that language, so that counterparts could trade with each other around cat risk, a common understanding on data formats, around the analytics associated with that. Yep. And really we've done that in terms of climate risk within the insurance industry, but the ability to do that across broad sets of domains, companies in, in different segments, really allows sort of that common currency to emerge, but also then the insurance industry to engage with their counterparts in those different segments in the same language, using the same data formats, the same sub underlying science as the insurance industry has been using for years. So not only can we deliver that climate capability to those other segments, but I also think it allows the insurance industry to engage with those segments and those companies, and then sort of be able to solve some of the more difficult challenges around the world. So it makes a ton of sense just from a basic business point yeah. of view, because obviously Moody's would like to get in front of a lot of your customers and they're the same yeah. people buying those products yeah. who are potential much broader Moody's analytics customers. And at the same time, Moody's sells to governments and to much bigger agencies that probably you necessarily haven't had a relationship with. Yeah, we had a, a very light footprint in those other areas on our own, but sort of Moody's facilitates and enables that sort of much broader engagement with those markets. And it's a stronger voice within those industries than we had as our RMS on its own. But we're also part of essentially a data and analytics business now, which has a much broader scope. So we've seen over the last two years an acceleration of our investment in the different areas that we're looking at, because we've got a very strong balance sheet sitting behind us, a parent who is really committed to the data and analytics business and sees the opportunity to really bring more capabilities to the insurance industry through the engagement that we currently have. And of course, you've got those non-insurance financial institutions, banks, let's say, again, yeah. that's probably a large opportunity because of course, a lot of banks probably, they don't necessarily understand. They've got a lot of vicarious insurance exposure, haven't they? Particularly mortgage lenders and all sorts of people. Yeah. Well, we started off looking at climate risk for these sort of banks and asset managers. If you're putting out a loan for the next 30 years, obviously the climate signature of that particular asset is particularly important. Yeah, and if it's at the top of a hill today, but the, it will soon be an island. Yes. And, and it's a very different risk. Yeah. Very different risks and the risk profile changes out over time. So we introduced a product called Climate On Demand which produces climate risk scores on a global basis at a 10 meter resolution. So any asset around the world that a bank may lend against, we've got the climate signature today 
and how that climate signature changes out on different climate pathways over to 2100 timeframe. So it's a very different product than very, what you're selling to an insurance Well, what's company. interesting is it's a very different product. We have about 130 banks and asset managers who are using that product today. And then we started introducing not just a risk score, but the expected loss and how the expected loss changes over time. And we're working on looking at the distribution of loss and how the distribution of loss changes over time. And as we've started to do that, we've got a, a number of insurers who are looking at that saying, well, actually, I'd be quite interested in understanding that, but also understanding it in areas which are less well modeled around the world. So if you take Africa, for example, yeah. sort of less well modeled from a conventional modeling point of view, these types of risk scores and the distributions of loss at that type of resolution are particularly important in terms of because how they I suppose often yes when you're looking at territories that don't have a huge amount of premium income obviously it's not necessarily a commercial imperative for you to go and model yeah. a country because if they've got a very small insurance industry I suppose you'd only wait you know obviously everyone wants to model the US because it's where half all the premiums in the world are yeah and that's the other interesting point of being part of Moody's because. You're right in terms of our decision criteria, say, when we're on our own as RMS, it would be, well, where is the insurance industry? Where are the premium dollars? Where is that footprint? But as we've got customers across different segments now, where are the banks sort of dominant? Where are the asset managers? We can build more of a investment case because we've got a much broader customer base. And in we've got governments themselves and sort of yeah. a pan-national bodies like the World Bank and these sort of things, but they're all very interested in working yeah. with you. Absolutely. And we've, we've done a lot of work in those different areas. We did work previously, but again, that's really accelerated. But having started those conversations with those banks and those asset managers about their climate exposure, you're right in terms of your earlier comment that it then dawns on them, well, we have exposure today. <laughs> yes. And if you take sort of uninsured exposures, it's essentially feeding through into the sort of default probabilities of particular loans that they're putting out there. So we're increasing our engagement with those companies. Yeah, it affects, the, bond, companies. affects yeah. the rating of some of those bonds yeah. that are backing all that. Yeah. Yeah, it has to. It's got to, and yeah. if it's not, then, you know, why isn't it? And it ought to be incorporated. And obviously, it's all about increased sophistication on all sides. Yes. It? Yeah. Something that I've admired Moody's from a distance, being one of the first companies to really try and get into the weeds on ESG modeling. Again, something that's such a vast topic because, well, it's three topics in one and something that we're probably not talking about as much. We seem to all be talking about AI this year, but certainly a couple of years ago, it was all we could talk about. And it's obviously something that's not going to go away. Again, there seems to be a huge potential. Moody's has done a lot of that work of trying to create some standardization around measuring ESG exposure or even to almost to quantify how much carbon is in this portfolio. Mm. Or I'm an insurer, I'm going to insure an airline. What does that do to my own ESG score if I insure it? If I insure 10% of it, yeah. if I insure 15% of it, or I only insure the top layer? And then how do I then communicate that and pass it on to my reinsurers and then to their ultimate investors and to my own stockholders? Yeah. It's a fascinating subject, and I think that Moody's has been the company that certainly visibly to me has made the best stab at having a go at it, Yeah, because it seems like a, a very difficult thing to even begin to get your head around. Presuming now that you're working together, it's going to be something that you're really going to major on. Well, ESG is one of those aspects, but yeah. if, if, if you step back and look at one of the data assets that Moody's have, we have the largest public and private company database in the world, around 470 million companies. So we've got data sets on who owns that company, who works there, where they're located, the subsidiary structure, who their suppliers are, 
all of those types of things. And on 360 million of those, we've also got the ESG score. So it creates the ability for an insurer to look at a portfolio of risk and understand the ESG profile on that portfolio of risk. And in September of what, 2022, we launched an ESG scorecard along with our, our friends at um, Chaucer to look at what would be the ESG profile of a portfolio that they were underwriting. And if you think about sort of how we price risk, where you look at the marginal contribution to capital so yeah. by writing that risk, we can look at the marginal contribution to the ESG score by writing that particular risk. But also as we have the breakdown of all of the different factors which contribute to the ESG score, it's not just sort of one number or, or whatever. It's all of the different That's components that, that break up and it starts to educate the whole world about it. Right, you know, if an underwriter was putting a line pieces, down, yeah. you know, if they knew that this is actually going to be really ESG dilutive, I thought I'm doing a great right here. Uh, certainly on pure dollar terms, this looks brilliant. It should make money and in pure insurance, old fashioned insurance terms. But what if it's going to mess up my ESG score? And, you know, that's going to make a big difference with me new factors to take into account when you're acting. Well, it's another factor in terms of the risk profile and the attractiveness of capital coming into the industry who may like one particular profile over another. We facilitate the understanding of that risk profile and then sort of allow the counterparts to trade on the back of no, that. Fascinating. Something I think that's got a really big future. So good luck with all that work. And as it gets more and more granular, more and more useful and more transferable, I think it's going to be something that will, yes, we're going to be talking about for the next 30 years. But that's just one example, like that firmographic data that I've been describing. If you're a DNO underwriter, you'd love to have that um, firmographic data to be able to look at that risk to, but that you're getting, not just Google search the company and get a few sort of financials, but we've got the last five years financials, we've got the full subsidiary structure, all of the latest, how it would score from uh, all of the different relevant factors that you're interested in. And so we're looking at sort of areas like that and saying, well, could we repackage all of that data and bring it to the insurance industry? And we've got a number of examples of that. I, I often refer to sort of the Moody's data set as the hidden treasure within the industry. When I was the chief risk officer at Axis, outside of being a customer of RMS, I was also a customer of Moody's. I was accessing a bunch of this data, be it the credit risk data or some of this firmographic data, to help me sort of manage the overall risk within a company. So I've seen the power of bringing this together. And really, as we're looking to the future and what we're doing with the overall Moody's insurance offering, it will be bringing those types of data assets and those types of modeling innovations to really sort of serve the industry and help that greater understanding. Can you just explain that phrase? Is it, did you say firmographic? Firmographic. Yeah. What does that mean? So company information. So firm. Oh, firm. Oh, right. Okay. Good. I yeah. thought there's some new <laughs> ancient Greek word that I was unaware of, but there's a huge amount going on. And this partnership with Moody's being owned by Moody's makes a ton of sense. Back to the day job of kind of core insurance modeling, tons going on again in there. Secondary perils, obviously we've been in a very dynamic period for secondary perils where some of them have become just more perils. It's just stop calling them secondary. It's just call them, these are perils that can really hurt you. So you probably need to model them as much as you possibly can. Again, where are we on some of those? I mean, I remember one of your predecessors many years ago was on a round table down in Monte Carlo, described back then, 20 years ago, flood. He described it as, uh, you know, it's the third rail of modelling. You touch it at your peril. I think people have been touching it now quite a lot and not electrocuting themselves for quite a long time because the huge amount of investment and work has gone into flood and to understanding flood. Yeah, obviously, it's one of those secondary perils, but it's a primary peril for most people if they're actually three feet underwater. Mm. 
how you respond to that challenge, presumably, it's a huge new area for new products. So it must be great. It must be good for business, surely. It's got demand out yeah. there that is not being satiated. Yeah. It's interesting. When we were acquired by Moody's and we have all of these other capabilities and all these other things that we can deliver, one thing I was very clear with the team and very clear with our customers as well, that we're not going to lose sight of our core. That our core is sort of the catastrophe models that we built, the technology that we built to enable those catastrophe models to the industry. And so you're right to bring me back to that focus because that's really the bread and butter of sort of our, our business and, yeah. and really sort of 90% plus of our activities are really focused on that. So looking at secondary perils as a particular area, it's one of those things that sort of we've tried over the last couple of years to expunge the term secondary perils from the dictionary. I think once you've paid yeah. so many billion for, yeah. for it, you'd say, why does it need to be called secondary? It sounds pretty painful to me. Well, and if, if you look over the last five years, there are a couple of reports out there which suggested that the so-called secondary perils had and being responsible for 60 to 70% of the loss over that in the last five years. So they really are not secondary anymore, that distinction between primary and secondary. And we started to look at, well, could we call them earnings perils? Because they were really hammering the earnings of a lot of insurance companies. Absolutely. And we'd see it across the world within this. But interestingly, when I was talking to some of our Italian insurers at um, Baden-Baden, and they were talking about the severe convective storm, the hailstorm losses that we had in July of last year there, you're actually hitting some of the top layers of CAT programs. So it's not earnings anymore. Yes. But so they're really important to look at that. So what's top of your list? Of, of, it's well, quite a long list as well. Well, what we did sort of, and this is one of the reasons why a number of years ago, RMS started developing what we called high definition models or HD models to really look at the nature of some of these perils, which were much more complex than the traditional perils that we looked at, looking at the correlations between perils and around geography, getting into perils where we needed much more granularity in terms of the way that we were modeling the geographic exposure. And so we started on that journey to look at sort of flood was the first, but severe convective storm. Looking at these types of perils, putting a new, more complex uh, modeling engine into that, and it's why we needed to move our platform from an on-premise sort of modeling environment to a SaaS-based solution because we needed more compute, more power in order to run these types of models. We launched those models and we're starting to see real uptake as our platform has achieved scale, as our customers are really seeing a lot of loss coming from these types of perils and, and really sort of a focus now from the industry on really how do we tackle that, particularly with the, some of the changes that have happened with the reinsurance market over the last Absolutely, two or three years. Absolutely, yes. And, yes any listeners to the podcast would recommend listening to the last Monte Carlo special and also the 1 1 special we've just done, obviously, and that the real story has been, yes, far increased retentions for insurers, i.e., having to retain a lot more of these sort of perils that they'd previously be able to share some of the burden or a lot of the burden or, or sometimes 100% of the burden hmm. passed on to reinsurers. And now that's certainly not the case. Really yeah. interesting what you're saying about all these perils being connected to a severe convective storm, I suppose. Yes, it, obviously it's very windy. It will, can produce spin-off hurricanes. It could produce flash floods. And it can probably produce hailstones the size of baseballs, which come down and, you know, are not very good if you've got a secondhand car lot. Well, it was interesting in, in Italy, the, I think they were recorded as hailstones with a 19 centimetre diameter. So 
This is not a baseball. This, this is, is a bowling ball. <laughs> or a football hitting car. You don't want to be is, outdoors when that's your yeah. umbrella's not going to work. Yeah, which is why the damage from that event, um, 40% of the damage was actually from motor vehicles. And so you're seeing a, a change in that dynamic. But you're right in terms of pulling those things together. So in 2023, we launched our European Windstorm high definition model, which was the first model that we had brought to the market and really engage with the market in a different way than we'd done previously, because it completed the full atmospheric set of perils within Europe, our SCS model and our flood model, so they could look at cross-peril correlations as well as country cross-geography correlations and also the temporal correlations within these types of events. So we saw significant uptake in the European windstorm model as a result of bringing that to market. And you probably saw at the end of last year, Allianz issues its cap bond on the basis of uh, of that model, which where we saw really good acceptance. Oh, excellent! Again, you know, you, know, you said yeah. right at the beginning, you know, we couldn't have the ILS industry if it hadn't been for the development of RMS. I think mm. you can say that those two things have gone hand in hand, bringing new capital into the industry yeah. on the back of your new understanding that you've brought to it to those ultimate investors. Yeah. I'm going to, need to quickly unpick. You said SaaS, which is software as a service, so that's effectively cloud computing, yes. whereas rent lots of computers and bring huge amounts of computing power to bear on some very complex problems and lots of knotty number crunching that needs to be done. In a very fast time frame as well, and at a scale that we couldn't do previously. Yeah. So you're really putting the analytics in the hands of decision makers in real time now. You're not going to sort of um, yes, have a server and sitting in the corner or somewhere in the basement of your office and send someone off and then say, yes, sorry, it's going to take 36 hours to run that yeah. program. That's not going to happen anymore. That's going to be all done on the fly. Well, it's done at a much, much faster pace than, yeah, than it was done previously. You still have that sort of spinning wheel yeah. of doom while you're waiting for it to process, but otherwise, well, yes. Well, we, we deal yeah. with really complex portfolios. The, the platform that we've developed to be able to, to run these models, we have around 150 insurers, brokers, reinsurers currently on the platform. We're running about five or six billion locations a month on the platform. So you still get a the spinning wheel if you're running a significant portfolio but the scale that we can deliver Pretty now speedy. to the industry is is just transformational and what sort of insights can you get some of the, these things are so localized aren't they can you look at a building and say this building's better than the building across the street for severe convective storm to actually oh, say the storm will absolutely. never hit that one but it'll hit this one well you can make sort of differentiations between different buildings based upon obviously the construction type obviously the elevation location. Yeah, yeah and a specific Location. So it's handy for an underwriter and say, well, you know, actually, this one is a better building than the opposite building because it's slightly higher up or whatever, or lower down or whatever, whatever's good. Yeah. But it's again, sort of being part of Moody's and having the investment behind us and some of the partnerships really enable different types of questions than we could answer previously. One of the things that we did as Moody's last year is we created a partnership with Microsoft around Gen AI. And so we introduced a Gen AI co-pilot into our intelligent risk platform, which runs our models. And if you think you've got a platform environment there where you've got all of your exposure data, you've got all of the results from all the models that you run, and now you can start to interrogate that in, with natural language queries in a way that we couldn't have done previously. So you can say, tell me, do you think there's any correlation between people having red front doors and having bad loss <laughs> records? Not quite that type of question, <laughs> but other things. We did a, a demonstration at our exceedance conference um, last year of uh, the prototype of this co-pilot. And we demoed sort of a, a situation where you've got a, a hurricane, which would be, say, off the coast of Florida. Now, you as the CEO of a, an insurance company, what, what would you want to know? 
where is this going to hit? So <laughs> what's the likely losses? Where's which, it going to hit? What am I going to get? And yeah, am I covered? Yeah. Which contracts are affected sort of within those contracts? What are the limits exposed? And then things like, have other events happened yeah. in history? Do I need to run out to the live yeah. cap market right now? Yeah. Those types of things. And, and typically sort of the CROs or the CEOs of the world would ask those questions, their cat analysts, and they'd scurry away. And it may take a couple of days to come back with those types of answers. With that type of technology within the platform, you can start to answer those questions in real time and think about the insights that that creates and also where it would lead the industry in terms of the sorts of questions that we can answer in future. You take a portfolio of risk and you'd start to look at, well, where are my hotspots? I remember sort of during my time as a CRO, really struggling with that question. We had an insurance business that was writing catastrophe risk or reinsurance business. We had underwriters all over the world. And you put together all the accumulation systems and all this sort of thing, but you try scratching your head saying, where is this concentration? Where am I going to really get hurt? And we had a, a loss from the Calgary floods where we had one division writing on one side of this flood area and then another division writing on another side. And we hadn't put together the fact that a flood could take out both and we would get that clash. With that sort of technology that we've got now, those sorts of looking for hotspots in your portfolio, looking at concentrations of risk before the loss has actually materialized to tell you you had a concentration, Again, much more insights and now you can that be we're training creating. that generative AI to go and find it for you and yeah. keep flagging things up and say, by the way, don't you think you should have a look at this? I've, well, I, I'm and, worried and, about this. Yeah, I'm worried about this and why not buy FAC on if you that, take that, that concentration out of the equation? Yeah. It's not so bad. Yeah. So those sorts of things that you can start to look at within your it's portfolio using so, this technology. To, yeah, my original question about all this is that it sounds like we're at a very sophisticated stage already, even though we're talking about these secondary perils as if, as if we've somehow back at year zero trying to learn about them. It sounds like you've already learned a huge amount about them. It's nowhere near that we're sort of, we've set the clock back 20, 30 years. And we're starting from zero. It sounds like we've already started from quite a big leg up. Well, we've got a big leg up, but we're constantly learning. And I think that's one thing that we need to never take for granted, that events are going to teach us about different aspects of the risk that we may not have seen before or that we may not have emphasized before, or things like post-loss inflation, legal changes within a particular country that will materialize, or supply chain issues within So it sounds much with, more holistic. Yeah. And again, I suppose, and if you bring that core Moody's offering as well, of yeah. course, you've got the other side of the balance sheet, the asset side of the balance yes. sheet, of course, which we always forget correlates, and it very often does correlate with big loss events around the world, and we wish they wouldn't, but they do. Yeah. Um, again, so I presume you can bring a more holistic view to that as well. Yeah, and we're exploring a number of those areas to see where we can identify those correlations, what insights we can bring to the industry. And as I say, we've got a capability there, this hidden treasure, if you like, which is table stakes in other industries, which we can bring that to the insurance industry and really sort of educate and sort of really increase the understanding of risk within these different areas. What about the real bread and butter RMS, say Quake and Wind, your core products for the last 30 years. Obviously, always new releases, always new science to take into account. Anything in, in the runes for anybody? Often it's, this is where I would go back to being a journalist and thinking, what would be the news story? Would it be, things are going to get worse because RMS is going to redo its model and everyone's going to recalibrate and i.e. they're going to have to put the prices up? Or is it good news or bad news at the moment in terms of our view of risk overall on Quake and Wind? I think there isn't one clear answer <laughs> to, to that, but I, I think what we've tried to do in the last couple of years is really bring the industry along with us. 
the different parts of the industry along with us around any changes that we're putting through into the model. If you take sort of Nahu, North America, Hurricane, when we released version 22 of that model, we had two different sort of views of vulnerability within that because we identified that there was legislative changes in that we'd seen in Florida. We'd identified that there was sort of inflationary changes that we were seeing in the data. And we wanted to engage with the industry around this. We had our primary view, but we were flagging these things are out there. We really want to engage to understand your views on it, to engage with all of the different stakeholders. And then we were able to bring that back together in version 23, having had that engagement. But through that process, the whole market was educating about the different aspects of the changes that we were seeing. If I go back to say 2011, 2010, 2011, yeah. when RMS sort of would bring sort of models out it like, would, here's your model. Here's the model. The results would change, and then the industry would react to that. I remember writing news stories saying it's kind of RMS has kind of put the cat among the pigeons. So what you're saying now is it's a far more collaborative, far more transparent process, and therefore is far less likely to produce shocks. Yeah. We're never going to shy away from the science and what the science is telling us and what the data is telling us. So we can take the independent view that we're going to sort of change our models where they make sense because of what we're seeing but we're gonna adopt that collaborative approach to bring the industry along with us. If you look at sort of, for example, sort of earlier this month in the Noto earthquake in Japan, a number of years ago in our HD model of Japan quake, we combined that with tsunami risk. Yep. It's obvious now, it's all based upon what we'd seen from events, but a lot of models treat quake separate to tsunami. We really felt it was important to combine that. And when we were looking at the Noto event, you really saw the benefits of that combination of different factors being built into the same model. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's, it's still the Earth, even though it's at the Earth on the seabed, it's still the Earth. Yeah. Same planet, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> another thing, we call it a secondary peril, it's, it's a whole industry in itself, cyber. And obviously, another string to your bow, another really fascinating area. I suppose looking from the outside, we're seeing cat bonds and even the traditional cat XL market being ignited and growing around this, obviously a very growing class of business that perhaps previously we might've worried that unless we've got a real handle around understanding these potential systemic risks and large event risk within that class that it was gonna hit the buffers on growth, because obviously we know the demands there forever, but was there gonna be the reinsurance capacity and the ultimate sort of ILS, ultimate high-end capital capacity to protect capital against really big events? Yeah. Is it we're slapping ourselves on the back that we've done a good job? We've got to a point with the modeling that you've done your job again of getting those ultimate investors comfortable that we know what we're talking about in terms of what are the worst case scenarios in cyber. Because we've obviously now we've on the back of these, we've seen cyber ILS forming. We worked on a cat bond with Beasley at the yeah. end, end of last year to bring that risk to the market. But I think cyber is a challenging risk and it's a risk unlike hurricanes or earthquakes or any of the other things that we deal with. And I think there is a a huge education process that we still need to, to go through. We've been investing sort of since 2016. We're on version seven of our cyber model. It's the leading model within the industry. But through last year, we were engaging with a lot of the different stakeholders in the industry and looking at this challenging question, which is, if you think of the industry back at the end of 2022 was around 12 to $14 billion of premium. If the goal is for the industry to grow to around 60 to $70 billion of premium within the next three to five years, yes. because as you say, the demand is there for corporates and governments wanting the industry to step in and provide this type of solution. 
that we've really got to bring in more capital, bring in sort of more counterparties into this space. And through that engagement, we found that we were getting a lot of nervousness from boards about some of the accumulations that they were taking, from regulators about some of those accumulations. Do we really understand this risk? Have we really seen the types of events that could be quite meaningful? And then on the flip side of that, you've got the big tech companies saying, the insurance industry doesn't understand this risk because it's charging way too much for things like cloud outages and whatever. We need to do something on that side. And so through that engagement with the industry, we're committed to triple our investment in cyber modeling. We came up with a new five-year roadmap within that to deliver from basic underwriting of cyber risk through risk management, through to full accumulation, a full suite of tools for the industry to get the industry to the point where it could be confident about expanding at that scale, not to just exclude different pieces because the industry doesn't grow by exclusions. It, it grows by educating, embracing the risk and then figuring out how we can underwrite that. So we came up with that five-year roadmap, but through the engagement with the insurers and reinsurers and the brokers, they said to us, look, that's too long. <laughs> we can't <laughs> wait for that sort of time frame in order for you to deliver all of this. And that's where we came up with the idea of the cyber consortium, where we've got a number of the key stakeholders within the industry and BitSide who provide a lot of cyber risk data to the industry who Moody's own a significant share of BitSide. We brought that consortium together to really say, well, how can we accelerate that development from a five-year roadmap round to a two to a three year roadmap, how can we help you help us steer this, prioritize to co-invest with us to really accelerate that development so the whole industry can grow at the pace that we think it's possible. So it's all about collaborating and bringing in different yeah. skill sets. Yeah, and it, that type of collaboration was really the collaboration when we were starting to have challenges. I remember as sort of being in a broking firm, looking at catastrophe risk and working with RMS very much in a collaborative way to develop and educate and create that market. We see that same opportunity here as we look to really scale the cyber market to a point where we can really play our role in society and really deal with the cyber risk. Absolutely. And you're mentioning there is almost an ecosystem approach. And it seems to be, again, another development within your world, I suppose, again, and, and certainly in all of the high-end, high IT heavy world, seems to be this collaborative approach, the idea of providing people with a platform upon which they can run different models, they could run models that belong to third parties. Yeah. How's that recognition that we can't be all things to all people yeah. and that there are going to be specialists and this is a very broad industry and you should perhaps that you're going to want to play your role as being a central playing field upon which people can do lots of other things. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The analysts within the industry spend too much of their time taxing data between different systems converting from one format to another format so that the exhaust from one system can be ingested to another system and all of the challenges with that. And so when we created the platform, we really wanted that platform not to be just for RMS models and applications, but to be open to the industry. And last year we launched an initiative with NASDAQ to open up third-party models to the industry so that Anything that can run on the NASDAQ platform can also be run on our intelligent risk platform. We're working with a number of companies where they've developed their own models that they've developed. Some of the larger companies, the larger brokers have developed their own models and they want to be able to run those on the platform. They don't want to sort of have to deal with data format conversion or say taxing data between systems. They just want to be able to execute models, 
run comparisons, run validation, get the insights from that, and then get on with running their business and driving profitability within their portfolio. Yeah, imagine if you were, you know, you're an accountant and, and you'd have to change from one type of spreadsheet to another all the time. It would drive you completely potty, wouldn't it? Yeah. And so we've delivered that capability, but also the format between, like, if you think of sort of the number of different formats that are out there within the market. So yeah. obviously we have our own format, but we've got OED and seed data and so on. Our platform ingests all of that and does all of the conversion itself so that the companies and the analysts don't need to be thinking about that type of conversion. There's a whole host of different features and we're working with data providers to bring more data to the platform, application developers to develop on the platform. And the aim is that the industry will corral around this and say, we don't want to deal with sort of data format conversions anymore. We want to just execute models from different sources and then we'd... Yeah. Um, so it's, and it's all about thinking about the customer, trying to make yeah. it really easy for them to get a better outcome and better understanding of their risk, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Great. Well, all power to that. That yeah. sounds really, really good. You mentioned AI earlier, but more in the context of risk management for an insurance company, for example, looking at their own accumulations. What about AI within your own business? Presumably, this is a great boon, you know, AI will allow you to spin up new models quicker, i.e. will yeah. write them for you. We've been using AI for model development for a number of years. So just sort of the pure AI wasn't something new that we came across last year. So that development has been happening and accelerated the timeframe for our, our model build. But we also used AI in terms of looking at loss estimation. If you think of the sort of like during the COVID years when you couldn't get people on the ground to go and look at the nature of the damage to a particular building, yeah. you were dealing with satellite imagery, you were dealing with, in some cases, you had drone images. But to be able to assimilate all of that information and come up with a loss estimate based upon the damage to particular properties or what we are seeing in terms of some of the flood damage or th those types of things, we could use that technology to come up with those loss estimates. And through that time period, we were using that very heavily in, in order to do that. But then you move on a couple of years outside of that. Today, it's sort of viewed as more basic use. At the time, it was revolutionary use of this technology. And you think about sort of where we could use the sort of AI and Gen AI co-pilots more broadly. And so we're examining that on a very broad scale. We took our sort of documentation, we have documentation on all of our models, all of the technology that we've got. And so a user would get the documentation, would read through it, sort of would go through the index to try to find where the particular piece was on this particular model or, or whatever, or what was causing this piece. So last year we put a co-pilot into that so that, again, we've got sort of a natural language query on all of our documentation. So our users can then sort of query that documentation and then just say, where is this rather than- Ah, yeah, where is this bit that's giving yeah. this slightly anomalous result yeah. that's puzzling me? Yes. And we're investing very heavily looking at how we can use that type of technology across things like our applications development using the GitHub Copilot yeah. to speed our applications development. We're looking at a broad base of where this could be useful to really accelerate our development, create innovations for our customers, and hopefully create more insights, more growth within the insurance industry. Yes, these timeframes are just going to get quicker and quicker all yeah. the time. Yeah. And that's where we've got the benefit of having a parent like Moody's behind us with a very broad balance sheet, a, a commitment to data and analytics. And it's not just in sort of our offerings to the insurance industry that Moody's is looking at this, but this is the ethos across the entire company a lot of energy behind these types of innovations. 
I've got a piece of paper with questions on. I think we've spoken about everything on the list. Is this something we're missing? No, I think this has been a great conversation. So thank you, Mark. No, yeah. thank you. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've got a really good job. It sounds really <laughs> exciting because there's, there's so much stuff going on. It's all fast moving. It's all really interesting. Yes, it sounds like even if we did another podcast this time next week, we'd probably have new stuff to talk about. Yeah, I was out at the India Rendezvous in Mumbai and talking with the Indian insurance market about some of the losses that they've seen, the evolution of the insurance market and where things are going in the future. And it was fascinating. I always say to people, like, I get my energy from engaging with customers because they're bringing to us challenges on, on their business, challenges in terms of risk management. And it really sparks us into gear about, so where can we innovate? Where can we really add value to the industry? And then we haven't suddenly made me think, goodness me, you know, this rise in parametric stuff is going to be huge. Again, how is an underwriter going to calculate half these things without really granular models well, from you? And we're engaged with a number of parties on yeah, exactly I can imagine. that. <laughs> I can imagine. So, Mike, thanks so much for your time. And I really enjoyed our discussion. It's been really good. That's great. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>